This is Brazil, a nation with some of the world's most remarkable natural wonders, not to mention beautiful people. Unfortunately for Brazilians, however, the country is also home to a slightly less remarkable economy. Perhaps that's surprising, considering that Brazil is currently the ninth largest economy in the world, according to the International Monetary Fund. This means that if the nation did make the jump from developing to developed, it could rival economic superpowers like Germany, Japan, or the United Kingdom. As crazy as it may sound, it could be an economy that rivals the USA or China. But of course, it isn't. This picturesque nation has been the centre of controversy in recent years, struggling with huge political spills, corruption scandals, and impeachment proceedings. All of which has done nothing to help this emerging nation make that transition. A silver lining is that Brazil's short and troubled history contains many lessons for other nations hoping to learn from its mistakes, ranging from political instability to mismanaged natural resources. You are watching Economics Explained. If you enjoy these videos, please consider liking and subscribing. If you really enjoy these videos and want to get involved with their creation, stay till the end for an exciting announcement. Once a superpower in the making, Brazil has fallen short of capitalising on its potential. The factors at play here are of course incredibly complex, but they boil down to a few key issues. First is the nation's political instability. Second, the country has less than ideal geography, and third, Perhaps most importantly, it's down to the industries in which it chooses to prioritise. Understanding these failures is critical to helping other nations that are also trying to build their way into a better future. It may also reveal why the nation is fighting so hard to stay open during this global crisis. It would be impossible to understand the economics of Brazil without understanding the politics of Brazil. If this topic could be compressed into one word, it would be volatile. What a lot of people don't realise is that the civilised country we know today is actually quite young. Prior to 1985, the whole place was run by a rather ruthless military dictatorship. This eventually came to an end with a series of elections leading to the election of this man, Lula da Silva, most commonly known as Lula. He was a founding member of the Workers' Party, which as the name suggests was strongly in favour of sweeping social reforms covering things like education, workers' rights, and natural resource allocation. Lula also enacted radical policies that sought to emulate the success of other rapidly growing nations like China. The country was building industries, exporting resources, and upskilling workers at an unprecedented rate. This all led to the most concentrated period of economic growth in the nation's history growing over 500% in the years that President Lula was in power. This sustained prosperity made the president unbelievably popular, polling above 70% during his two terms. His constituents saw him reign over a period that gave them wealth like they had never imagined. It was easy to see why people assumed that this wealth was all because of their new government. But all good things come to an end, and the turn of the new decade hit Brazil's economy hard. We will explore the reasons why shortly, but for the new president of Brazil, this meant that people were looking to point fingers. The people found their scapegoat with the Petrobras scandal, which is to date the largest case of government corruption in world history. Petrobras is a semi-state-owned enterprise that is responsible for a majority of Brazil's oil production. It was a big business with a lot of money washing around and not a lot of oversight. Unsurprisingly, an investigation campaign dubbed Operation Car Wash found that government officials were getting huge sums of money as bribes. 
These officials would then vote to award lucrative Petrobras contracts to questionable businesses that of course only won these bids because of the politicians that they paid off. The sums involved in the scandal were simply massive. In little over four years of investigation, the campaign found that over two and a half billion dollars worth of funds had been misappropriated. Even worse, it was also uncovered that Petrobras had overpaid 12 billion dollars to these corrupt contractors. The return on investment for the businesses involved was pretty great, but it was less great for the nation as a whole. Oil revenues bankrolled the social policies that the people of the nation were starting to take for granted. If this oil money ran dry, so too did their quality of life. People at this time were reading the news about misallocated funds while also being told that the country could no longer afford to pay for all of the socialised services that they had come to expect. So to say this did not sit well was an understatement. This anger was one of the driving forces that led to the election of Brazil's current president, Jair Bolsonaro. Elected in 2019, he has attracted the attention of the world for his flamboyant rhetoric and radical economic plans like raising the retirement age from 48 to 65, which did probably not sit well with the 47 year olds in the country. Now while the political circus has been fascinating to watch, it's undeniably causing problems. It wouldn't be an economics explained country review without mentioning stability and confidence at least once. Unfortunately, the nation was facing issues far greater than corruption and woeful mismanagement. They were at the mercy of the middle income trap. The middle income trap is a phenomenon experienced by countries that are experiencing rapid development. It has been seen time and time again that nations embracing modern industry will undergo a sustained economic boom, which then comes to a grinding halt when their population reaches the global middle class. The global middle class is defined by economists as a GDP per capita of around 10 to 20,000 US dollars. The USA, for example, is securely in the global upper class. But by the end of 2010, after a decade of sustained growth, Brazil was sitting right there in the danger zone of the trap. Now we have briefly explored the middle income trap before on this channel when we looked at Chinese debt trap diplomacy. The idea is that nations like China or Brazil can grow wealthy by acting as a source of cheap labour for the world. Cheap labour might be cheap, but it still pays a lot better than farming. By capitalising on this, nations can build factories and employ millions of people into jobs that are going to pay them more money. People that earn more money can spend more money and suddenly the entire economy will benefit from this prosperity. The problem comes when these workers start earning too much money. It sounds like a good problem to have, but it means that a country is no longer as competitive as some other nation with a poorer and cheaper labour force. This in turn means work starts to dry up and your economic boom turns into a fizzle. This sounds simple enough, but it isn't the whole story. Barry Eichengreen is an award-winning economist on this issue, and he has published many papers exploring the dynamics of developing economies. In a 2014 paper, he delved further into this topic and identified a range of factors that cause these slowdowns. The first is, of course, that rising wages mean that a country's products will be more expensive, therefore less competitive, therefore less industry, therefore less growth. Nobody really argues with this. But another key issue at play here is internal migration. These economic booms see a massive influx of farmers moving into city centres to take advantage of more lucrative roles. This is great in the short term, but eventually a nation runs out of farmers 
who want to move. So they either run out of new workers, which slows down growth, alternatively, they can pay these farmers more to entice them to move onto factory roles, but this just slows growth indirectly as we saw earlier. This is all compounded by the impact of a falling birth rate. As nations get richer, people have fewer children. There are many reasons why this happens. Industrial work has less room for child labour than farming, where having your children help out is a little bit more socially acceptable. Falling infant mortality rates also mean that families need to have fewer children in the hope that at least some of them make it to adulthood. And finally, there is also the societal shift towards women in the workforce, favouring a career over raising a family. All of these are positive outcomes, but one side effect of this all is that you get an ageing population. Older workers tend to be less productive, especially in manufacturing roles. On top of this, there is a pressure placed on the economy to support these retirees who are no longer actively contributing to the wealth of the nation. So, the middle income trap sounds pretty bleak. As soon as you run out of cheap labour to exploit, the whole economic miracle comes to a grinding halt. This does not sound like the idealistic story that every nation in the world will soon be a fully developed economy. In fact, most wealthy economies ran out of cheap labour ages ago. So what is the deal? Well, Barry Eichengreen again makes an intriguing suggestion. By studying the few countries that have broken through the middle income barrier in recent decades, places like Japan, South Korea, and the United Arab Emirates, he found that all of them have one thing in common. Strong institutions that drive innovation is what makes the difference between a wealthy, developed economy and an economy that will remain in the global middle class. When you think about the nations we mentioned before, you will think of companies like Sony, Samsung, Toyota, LG, SoftBank and Honda. These companies have a strong manufacturing backbone, but it is their investment into innovation that makes them what they are today. The typical assumption is that underdeveloped countries have farms, developing countries have factories, and developed countries have services. Now this isn't incorrect, but it's not the whole truth. A strong service sector by itself means nothing. In reality, it's more the indicator of a strong economy rather than the driver of a strong economy. The progress of an economy is rather to go from farmers to industrialists and then on to innovators. Innovations, be it the silicon chip, the internal combustion engine, or some app that lets you find a date for your corgi, are all important for one reason. They allow you to leverage your industries beyond the specific capabilities of your nation. The United States, for example, could not produce competitive iPhones. They would just cost way too much. Instead, the United States have iPhones manufactured in China from materials mined in South America, then shipped by a South Korean shipping company to Europe where they will be purchased by a German working for a Swedish multinational. The United States has effectively leveraged other people's productive capacity to deliver wealth back to American institutions. Having institutions that can leverage global supply chains and markets is the biggest determinant of nations that make up the global upper class. By extension, if a country is to break out of the global middle income trap, it needs to encourage good institutions that drive innovation. Now, massive corruption scandals, political instability, and hostile rhetoric are unfortunately not conducive to this type of business. Finally, it's important to briefly mention another major thorn in the side of Brazil's economy. Brazil's geography is terrible. 
The coastline is covered in mountains which makes it very hard to set up ports. Its city centres are confined to tiny flat plains meaning that living arrangements get a little bit... dense. On top of this, there is the small matter of the entire nation being covered in the Amazon rainforest. This forest is not only very hard to work with logistically, but it's also protected internationally. The nation has major issues connecting its business centres like Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro and Brasilia because the mountains and jungle separating them are just too hard to navigate with typical interstate highways. In many ways, this makes Brazil a collection of separate little island economies rather than one big cohesive national economy. This is a huge issue for building up large-scale infrastructure. Industries like modern farming, mining and manufacturing are heavily dependent on having strong large-scale infrastructure. It just so happens that these are the industries that Brazil is most dependent on. This puts Brazilian exports at a bit of a disadvantage because they are just naturally more expensive to bring to the market. This is particularly apparent in low margin commodities like iron ore. There is a huge additional expense involved in getting iron ore out of Brazil and then through the Panama Canal and then across the Pacific Ocean to their main export partners. Brazil has been able to compete with nations like Canada and Australia in this market for a few reasons. Chinese demand for iron ore has been insatiable, prices have been pretty high and their labour is still very cheap compared to these developed countries. But because of the middle income trap as well as cooling Chinese demand, their once staple industry is starting to feel the squeeze. I recently received a great recommendation to rank national economies based on key criteria from the Economics Explained leaderboard. So thank you anonymous viewer, I'm going to do exactly that using these five criteria. Brazil is home to a massive economy. Despite all criticisms, it is still the ninth largest in the world. So it gets a 9 out of 10 here, only just falling short of the true world superpowers like the USA and China. Now the reason this economy is so large is because it has a lot of people, and that means the actual wealth is spread pretty thin. The average income for the 210 million residents of Brazil is less than $10,000 a year. It's not poor, but it's by no means wealthy, so it gets an even 5 out of 10 here. Stability and confidence are severely lacking. The recent corruption scandals, volatile politics and a fluctuating currency means that a lot of investors just don't have the risk appetite to work in the nation, and it gets a 3 out of 10. If you had asked about growth 10 years ago, it would have been an easy 10 out of 10. Unfortunately, all of the factors that we have discussed in this video have meant that the economy shrunk in the last decade. Based on average growth rates in the last 10 years, the economy has to receive a negative 3 out of 10. Finally, industry. The nation has a diverse range of exports and it is blessed by having a lot of natural resources. As we have seen time and time again, this isn't enough in isolation. The nation has struggled to move its companies onto the world stage. What few Brazilian institutions have become globalised are feeling the pressure back home. So industry is getting a 6 out of 10. Overall it gets an average score of 4 out of 10, which puts it into second place, since this has only been done for one other economy so far. Let us know if you agree or disagree with the rankings here. The most logical comment arguing for any particular ranking will get featured in the next video. Brazil is a fantastic economic case study. The issues that this nation has had to deal with are issues that every developing country is going to have to deal with. 
Have they handled these problems well? No, probably not. But that's okay, because it's a really clear demonstration of what happens when a nation gets caught up in this trap. It's not all doom and gloom though. There is nothing stopping this nation from bouncing back. The economic disaster that is 2020 is probably not the right time for this turnaround to start, but the new government has made economic growth one of their top priorities. President Bolsonaro has received heavy criticisms for his insistence on keeping the economy going throughout the global health crisis. The fact is, he kind of needs to. It's not necessarily the right move, but people are going to suffer either way. This might just be the opportunity the nation needs to break out of its rut. Hi guys, thanks for watching. If you enjoyed the latest video, please consider liking and subscribing. As for our exciting announcement, if you have experience in video editing or business content writing and want to be involved with the team behind Economics Explained, please check out the application form linked in the video description. Otherwise, as always, a huge thank you to our new patrons over on Patreon for making all of these videos possible.